0: Father, I pray your grace to be upon this time that you would touch each heart that you would pour out the grace of God Father, help me, I pray by the grace of God, help me Lord Jesus, I pray that you would pour out mercies and teach us from your word Father, these are precious hearts here Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to speak the word of God into their lives Father, I pray that it would have a a deep effect in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to speak today on the topic of happiness. And uh, uh, speaking from Psalm 32 on this topic of happiness, what I'll do is I'll read a verse in the New American Standard Version, and then I'm going to read... The Living Bible, what it has to say, the way, the way it, it covers that verse. So, Psalm 32, reading from verse 1, says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's the New American Standard. And the Living Bible says, What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joy when sins are covered look at what God does. He immediately sets up something and He says that there is a way of happiness. There's a way of happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven and when the sins are covered. There is a way of happiness in life. God wants happiness for us. He doesn't want us to suffer. He doesn't want us to walk in depression. He wants something much greater for us. Then in verse 2 it says, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And then Living Bible says, what relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. So the scriptures tell us that if we confess our sins, there is a route to happiness in this. And verse 3 says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. So when I didn't confess my sins, it was as if my body was just wasting away and there was this groaning all day long. And the Living Bible says, there was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. So the scriptures say that you, you know our sin can really weigh us down and, and it's an amazing thing to, to see students come through. So this is my 21st year as a professor and so I've seen a lot of students come through. It's interesting to see them come through as, as, as 18 year olds and then to see them 10 years later, to see them 15 years later. And there are ones as if, the world has just pounced on them and they're carrying around a hundred pound burden on their back and their faces age so quickly and it seems like they look older than I do and certainly they're carrying much more baggage than I'm carrying even though they're half my age and so when I see that sort of thing I say well then there's another type of people that I see them years after they've graduated, and their faces are still bright. So they're carrying something. They're, they're, they're not carrying the this, this same sort of baggage. So verse 4 says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vi- vitality was drained away, as with the fever heat of summer. And the other translation, the Living Translation, says... All day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day. So there was this burden that was being carried. I want to play because I, I heard a clip on NPR about infidelity the other day. Did anybody hear that clip? And, and uh, so we've got it loaded. So there's this, this, this short portion and I, I just want to play a few minutes of it. And what this portion is, is about a 20-year-old girl who's the mistress of some rich, married, older lawyer. And what I want you to do is just hear as this is read, uh, and as, as she's reading about her life, and just just hear the pain. So there's nothing to watch, it's just to hear. And to hear the pain in her life, as she recounts, even in spite of all the gifts that she was given, where she was on that.
1: you think somebody told me. That he and his wife didn't sleep in the same bed. That they haven't had a real marriage in years. That she was undergoing electroshock treatment in a clinic outside Philadelphia. That he had cancer and had to fly to Houston three days a week for chemotherapy. That his youngest daughter, age three, had a rare form of childhood leukemia. That he could not get a divorce for all of the above reasons. That he was heartbroken that he could not leave his wife and marry me. For a long time, I believed him. With every bone in my body, I trusted that Lenny Klein was telling me the truth. When we talked about it, his jaw would tighten and his big brown eyes would fill with tears. His voice would flavor with pent-up, complex feelings that I couldn't possibly begin to understand. Poor Lenny. I marveled that so many bad things could happen to one person, and I vowed to take care of him. I exhorted myself to be a real woman, wanted to step up to the plate and be good to her man in his moment of crisis. Later, I hold Lenny's lies up to the light and examine my own reasons for believing what in retrospect seems preposterous. I reread my old journal and noticed the way my girlish handwriting deteriorated into a scrawl as I wrote, I have to be there for Lenny, he needs me, and he's going through so much. I don't know if I can handle it, but I have to be strong. I try to remember that Lenny was a trial lawyer. That he built an international reputation based on his own pathology. That he lies with an almost evangelical conviction. He prided himself on being able to convince anyone of anything. The lies had small beginnings. Lenny called me from a business trip and told me he was at Montreal airport waiting to catch a flight to Calgary. I checked with the airline and found out that the flight would take approximately five hours. So when Lenny called an hour later to say he had landed in Calgary, I very calmly asked him where he really was. Calgary, he said. No, Lenny, really. He stuck to his story. In the time that I knew him, he never, ever changed his story midstream. I hung up on him and called his family's house in Westchester. When the maid answered the phone, I asked to speak with Mr. Klein. And when he picked up the extension, and I heard his rough, craggy, hello, I screamed so hard into his ear that he dropped the receiver. He raced into the city. He let himself into my apartment and found me curled up in bed. He scooped me up and held me to his chest. His wife wasn't home, he told me. She was having shock treatment, and someone had to take care of his daughter. He had not wanted to tell me because he'd wanted to spare me, to protect me from the horror of his life. Surely I understood. Shush, sweetheart, he murmured into the top of my head as I wept, my face beat red like a little girl. So many people need me, he said, but I love you best of all. Two years have passed and something has gone wrong terribly wrong, with my life. I don't in fact think of my life as my life, but rather as a series of random events that have no logical connection. I am no longer a student. I dropped out of Sarah Lawrence after my junior year, supposedly to pursue acting. And I'm actually doing a pretty good imitation of an actress. But I'm doing an even better imitation of a mistress. Lenny's been busy buying these things. I don't particularly want these things, but they seem to be what Lenny is offering in lieu of himself. So quite suddenly, overnight really, I find myself driving a black Mercedes convertible. And just in case I might be mistaken for anything other than a Catwoman, I wear a mink coat, a Cartier watch, a Bulgari necklace with an ancient coin at its center. The Mercedes is a step down from the first car that he gave me when we had been going out for a month, a leased Ferrari. I don't know how to drive six ship so the Ferrari was a bit of a problem. What I must have looked like a 20-year-old blonde dressed like Ivana Trump, stalled in traffic, grinding gears, trying to find the points on the clutch to hold that ridiculous car in place.
0: Okay. So there's there's more to her story, but you can see that doesn't sound like a happy woman. Ferrari, Mercedes, I mean Coke. But there was this emptiness there. And it's really a lot like what Ben was was saying, you know, if we go after things other than God, there's not this satisfaction. And God himself has this prescription for success, which says that if you confess your sins, you're going to be relieved of these things. He says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them, I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord, and you forgave me. All the guilt is gone. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that there is a way to free ourselves of this guilt, God is very clear. And it says that we confess our sins to God. To God we confess our sins. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Now I say that each believer should confess his sins to God when he is aware of them, while there is time to be forgiven. Judgment will not touch him if he does. So this flood of great waters, it says, doesn't even reach us if we confess our sins to God. And it says the same sort of thing in 1 in, in, uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 11. It says that if we confess our sins, He'll forgive us. If we don't, it says that He disciplines us. But we can even be free from the discipline if we confess our sins to God. It's an amazing gift. If we confess our sins to God, If if, if we don't confess, then we are not judged, the Scriptures say, along with the world. But we are disciplined as children. But we can escape even the discipline if if we confess our sins. It says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. You know, there's, a, there's a another verse, there's a, there's a verse in uh, Proverbs 18.10 that says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, those who run into it are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, those who run into it are safe. I was, in, uh, I was driving down the highway, and, and this was probably around uh, 1986, 1987, and I was driving down um, the highway 81 South in upstate New York, from Syracuse, New York, to New York City, and there were cars just on either side, but a little bit behind me, and it was snowing, and I must have hit some ice, and the car started going sideways down the highway, and there were cars, and no car could hit the brakes, the same thing would have happened to them. And I have always remembered this verse, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those who run into it will be saved. And I said, Jesus, help me. And boom, the car immediately turned the right direction started going. It was just amazing. I didn't touch the wheel, nothing. I didn't know what to do because I thought if I turned the wheel at all, you know, the thing was just going to go crazy. And I just said, Jesus, help me. And it just righted itself right on down the road. And I got off the next exit and I fell on my knees and thanked God. Because the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and those who run into it shall be safe. It says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And the the Living Bible says, you are my hiding place from every storm of life. You keep me from getting into trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. So in my life... This is like the story of my life. I'm telling you, God does this. It's as if He surrounds me with angels who are just pumping their fists and saying, yes, victory, victory. It says He surrounds me with songs of victory. Even if I'm not singing them, the angels are singing victory around me. This is what the Scriptures tell us. Happy is He who confesses His sin. God doesn't want us to carry this And He surrounds us with this deliverance. It's just amazing that He does this. He surrounds us with this song of victory. God does this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. Verse 8. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I will instruct you. So this is the Living Bible. I will instruct you and guide you along the best pathway of your life. I will advise you and watch your progress. I mean, this is just great. My kids have no idea what they have. I, I, if they want from me advice, I will give them advice. What you got to do to get through school? What you got to do to get into medical school? And, it, you, you know, my, my son said to me the other day, you don't know what it takes to get into medical school. I'm like, I only write about 30 letters a year that get people into medical school. <laughs> you think, I don't know. If, if I don't know who does, I know the committees that get people that accepts people in the medical school, I know exactly what to write to get them accepted. If I really want somebody accepted, I, I write to the committee, you would be idiots not to accept this person. I know how to write the letter. I know what it takes. Can you imagine God of heaven and earth says, I will instruct you and guide you in the best way. I will counsel you. He says, with my eye upon you, I will be your counselor, God says. Do you know what's the best path in your life to bring you the ultimate of what God has for you? Do you know? God says, He knows. We want Him to be our counselor. Look at this promise. I will advise you and watch your progress. I mean, God gives us this. It is a tremendous thing to know God. The first way He starts out is, you've got to be free of carrying your sin. You've got to confess your sin to God. And it will be forgiven. And then there's this relationship. And in this relationship, He will counsel us and guide us and watch our progress and watch us as we go along. He really knows what it takes. He will lead us to the right spouse. Just amazing the way He does that. I would pray, before I was married, I would pray, God, I pray that I, I get the right spouse. Lead me to the right person. And He really did that. That has been the treasure, prayer. I, didn't, I had no idea how giving and selfless my wife was when I, even when I got married. It is only as I've lived with her and I was, I was telling Jackie, I just wrote this poem for her for her birthday, and I wrote, you know, there's, there's this one, one thing that I, I, I wrote was that um, uh, when I beheld her selfless giving, it was as if, it, it, it was like the Son of God, with the Son of God I've been living. I mean, just amazing. God can do that for you. I'm telling you, He can do that for you. God will counsel you. God will direct you and He will guide you. But He never forces Himself on us. He never does. And He never takes away this this free will that we have to go against what He wants for us and to choose our own way. He never does. And I could never understand it as I see young people make decisions sometimes that bring them in this wrong way, that cause them to live what they know is a lie, like this this lady, who was living this lie, and she knew that this guy was lying to her, but she lived in this lie. And in her particular case, it becomes especially bonding when that lie involves a sexual relationship, because then there's a union in sex that is very hard to break, particularly... For women, there is a bonding that occurs that's particularly hard to break. And once a sexual relationship has started, even when you know it's wrong and it's a lie, it is very hard, particularly for a woman, to sever. And they will live in a situation that they know is wrong and ungodly and painful because this thing has been locked in there through a sexual relationship in verse 9 do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check otherwise they will not come near you don't be like a senseless horse or mule that has to have a bit in its mouth to keep it in line this is the warning of God you know he ha- because He wants and He has so much for, more for us He says many are the sorrows of the wicked but he who trusts in the lord's loving kindness he who trusts in the lord's loving kindness will surround him wherever I go it's just the loving kindness of god um, I knew this guy he had uh he had two dogs and they 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 loved this guy and he loved them and they were um, uh, goodness and mercy, because the Bible says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. <laughs> goodness and mercy is to follow him. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but abiding love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So rejoice in Him, all those who are His, and shout for joy, all those who are upright in heart. God establishes for us a way that's upright, that is right. And, and let me read this. This is from Charles Spurgeon wrote this, and he's commenting on a verse out of Proverbs twenty eight fourteen. And the verse says, Happy is the man that feareth always. It says... Uh, He's happy who feels a jealous fear of doing wrong. Holy fear looks not only before it leaps, but even before it moves. It is afraid of error, afraid of neglecting duty, afraid of committing sin. It fears ill company, loose talk, and questionable policy. This does not make a man wretched, but it brings him happiness. The watchful sentinel is happier than the soldier who sleeps at his post. He who foresees evil and escapes it is happier than he who walks carelessly on and destroys it. You know, God has a place of quiet happiness for us and it is in obedience to Him. You can really live a life that is free from this baggage that you see people carrying. And I'm telling you, you can see people as they age, carrying this unforgiveness and this guilt and they carry it and they store it up and it is a continual thing. You would think that you'd get to a certain age that you'd stop messing up in life but it doesn't happen. If it happens it's in an age older than me. And you know just in the last month I called a friend of mine an old friend of mine who you know I said some things to him several years ago and You know, at the time, I felt really justified in saying it. And I knew it hurt him. And, you know, the whole situation hurt both of us. And just recently, God reminded me of that. And I could try to justify this thing again in my mind, but I knew I had to go back and apologize to him. And I got him on the phone. He lives in another city. And and I apologized to him again. And I asked his forgiveness. He says, Jim, I forgave you. A long time ago. And I said, I thought so, but I just needed to ask your forgiveness. And you know, just, you know, there was this, this, this relationship, again, established. It's something that we never really get past. And it's something we deal with. And Jesus, Jesus gave us even specific details on this sort of thing. In Matthew chapter 5, He said... Jesus said, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And so He even says, He says He wants so much for there to be relationship, to be reconciliation. And if you go to a person... You know, don't say, well, you know, you were 50% wrong. Just just leave what's theirs theirs and just say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. They may forgive you. They may not forgive you. But leave it there. Once you've asked that, you are free. You are free. So you don't carry that baggage. That is a tremendous thing in marriage. It's a tremendous thing in life. Learn how to ask forgiveness of God. That's the First thing He says in that Psalm 32, Ask forgiveness. How blessed is the man who is free from this. And then He says, He will surround you with goodness. Surround you with loving kindness. He will counsel you, so that when you pray, Lord, I, I have these two job offers. I don't know which one to take. Lord, would you begin to make it clear. And He will guide you in your decisions. And He will watch over your progress. He'll guide you in decisions of marriage. He'll guide you in decisions and paths of life. He can do this. And you see from the Scriptures, He wants to do this. He wants to be our counselor. This is the promise that God has for us. Isn't that a beautiful promise? I hope that in 10, 15 years, when I see you again, you're not slouched over, but that there's brightness in your face. That you look and there's this shining that you can tell that within God has done a work and is continuing to do a work. You want that. Pray to that end. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for these precious young people, these young lives. Father, I pray that Your grace to be upon them that they would seek You and seek Your face, asking You for forgiveness, to walk according to Your way. Father, so much talent, so much life here among them. Father, I pray that You give them lives where they would seek You, seek Your face, and be happy people in the Lord because of obedience and fear of God, that they would learn how to ask for forgiveness and to move on with their lives and take hold of that loving counsel. Father, that they would seek You for counsel and instruction in their lives. Father, please lead them in Your way. Have mercy on them, I pray. Have mercy in the name of Jesus. Amen.